0: Danielle Rodeutchen, and this is In Talks With, a series of bite-sized chats about culture from lockdown and beyond. Kendall Gears, welcome to the In Talks With podcast. Um, We're recording over the internet on the 24th of June, 2020. I'm in England, and you're in Brussels, I believe. Uh,
1: Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here.
0: You're an artist who describes yourself as an, an animistic activist. I read that this means that you weave together diverse Afro-European traditions, including animism, alchemy, mysticism, ritual, and a complex socio-political activism laced with humour <laughs> and irony. That's quite quite a list.
1: I quite like to invent words, and so I you know invented this word animistic activist. And um, it's one word, and the capitalization is also important um, because the, the, various, the capitals then break down the, the word um, because it's also very much part of my research into language, the limits of language. Um, so the animistic part, well, you know, that's very, very easy to understand. Um, and it speaks about my roots as an African person born in Africa. But at the same time, um, of course, my ancestors are Dutch. Um, But having been in South Africa for 300 years, it begs the question, when does one become indigenous? At what point does one become an African? Um, And that becomes highly charged in a very interesting uh, discussion. But animism is important for me because it's a way to listen to the spirits of things, the spirits of nature, the spirits of objects, the the non-physical entities that we're surrounded by. Um, Now, of course, the Europeans would call that mysticism. So that's animistic. So the mystic part would be where alchemy fits in. And I feel as an artist, a great responsibility in the idea of transformation. How does one transform lead emotions into gold emotions? How does one transform base metals into higher metals? And that's really about the process of healing. Um, And then the activist part is spelled with a capital AK. And that's because it's you know it's offsetting away from the Latin spelling, changing the C into a K, um, which links up to Afrikaans and, and, and the Germanic languages. But the AK is a weapon, the, you know, it's a reference to the Kalashnikov, and it's this idea that art is a weapon of transformation. And having spoken about animism and the spirit of um, the, the things that we surround ourselves by, there's a great calling today to be responsible to the planet that we're inhabiting. And activism for me really, first and foremost, is about ecology um, and how it pays out from there into healing the planet, which begins with healing oneself. And in order to heal oneself, one has to address all kinds of prejudice, from misogyny through to sexism, through to racism, through to, um, you know, all all that bad education that we've received since
0: many generations
1: that we might call habit, which we assume to be common sense, which we assume to be the way things are done because that's the way they've always been done. Um, and the activism now you see playing out today, either in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement or in terms of the, the COVID pandemic, this need for healing and addressing um, the assumptions that our parents or teachers or previous generations have just left us to to to, to deal with.
0: You grew up in South Africa. um and apart from the obvious, what sparked your political mindset? You know, there's a series
1: of things. That I grew up in a working class white family, which is not the, let's say, the, the cliche that people outside South Africa would like to think of, um, you, know, you know, all white people were wealthy. Well, that's not true. It was a working class family and it was an extremely racist family. And there was a lot. There's a great deal of violence in the in the domestic situation. Great deal of violence in the in the family traditions. And at some point, I must have been twelve or thirteen. I was beaten up by my family, by my uncles, by my father, for asking the wrong questions. And the questions were simply, "Why is Mandela in jail?" Um, And we can go into the the construction of that morality. um, But it was basically once. I lost faith in the the, the, the way ethics or morality had been played out in my in my family. Once I lost faith in the father, literally in a very evil way, um, that then 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 the domino started to tumble. And at that point, you realised, but wait a minute, the problem is not just inside the family. The problem is wider than that. And by the age of 15, I ran away from home and ended up joining the anti-apartheid movement. And just there was a tail end between 19 19- 84 and 1989, I was extremely involved in, the, in the, as an activist. Um, ended up on trial for treason, um, went into exile as a refugee, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed refugee, and then went back to South Africa um, when Mandela was released in 1990 to be part of rebuilding the country.
0: What took you to Brussels?
1: Well, I mean, I lived in South Africa all the way through until the year 2000, um, and then, you know, the, the post-apartheid South Africa. Um, didn't turn out to be the rainbow that everybody speaks of. You know, it became a land of corruption, rape, and murder. Um, and you know, Nietzsche says, "Be careful when you look into the abyss, because the abyss looks back into you." And be careful when you fight a monster, you don't become a monster. And I was becoming a monster um, living in South Africa, so I needed to to, to get away. Um, and I came to Europe for the second exile. Um, I was living in London at the time. I lived through. I lived in Berlin, and, you know, the number of the, the, the big cities in Europe. Um, and eventually I ended up in Brussels because it's the most heterogeneous society that I have found in Europe. Heterogeneous not in the sense of the numbers of people because it's a small city, which I like, but heterogeneous in the sense that you have in a very small city so many different kinds of people living. You don't, you don't have the ghettos that you would have in London or in Paris where it is heterogeneous, but everybody's like pushed into the suburbs or pushed out. Um, and you end up with these large communities of different kinds of people. Whereas in Brussels, everybody's living together. Wealthy people, are people, especially in the downtown area. Um, and, and you have really a very, very, very mixed group of people of all sorts of nationalities. And I, this, this, you know, helps me to feel at home in terms of my identity and the contradiction of being a white African.
0: Now, earlier this year, you had a solo show at the Stephen Friedman gallery called Love By Any Means Necessary. The title derives from the protest movements of the 1960s and is inspired by a statement by Malcolm X about the use of violence in political liberation. I wanted to read a quote out that you um, gave in an interview. You said, in the wake of more than a century marked by affluence, we now stand at a dangerous crossroads the land rights claims in South Africa, the fence along the USA border, abortion rights in Alabama, the European refugee crisis, the gilets jaunes, Brexit and climate change are not separate problems, but all simply facets of one larger problem of disintegration, dissolution, alienation, denial, segmentation, prejudice and bigotry in the name of profit. Now this was earlier in the year, maybe back in February, I think when your exhibition opened, and your words When I read back, read them, you know, they seem particularly prescient, um, given what the world has been going through in the past few months. Do you see yourself as an agent for drawing attention to these things? And are you actually making a call for change? Um, Or is what you're saying, is it primarily a sort of anti-capitalist demand that you're making?
1: That's about half a dozen different questions in one sentence. (laughs) Um, And the answer to, to the question, I guess, is a simple yes. I guess this be a qualified yes. Um, I know. I understand very well my limitations as an artist because the language I speak is art. I'm not a politician. Um, I can't simplify things in the way politicians can. I can't give singular answers which is about right or wrong, black or white. However, having said that, um, the contradictions and the complexities of experience uh, are certainly my craft. And I can speak about emotions and I can speak about the human condition in ways that um, politicians cannot. And with art, we are able to speak the truth in complex ways where we can speak about the connection between um, the ecology and Black Lives Matter. Um, And with art, we can draw a big picture. Um, And from the big picture, one is able to um, then hone into the details and, and begin from there to um, try to dissect the problems in order to search out solutions. Um, and, the, you know, the great weapon of art for me is perception because the thing is that art changes the world one perception at a time. So the way, if we can change the way we see the world that we're inhabiting, um, and art is the greatest way of doing that because it helps you also to look in the mirror at yourself,
0: you seem to be speaking out about a wide range of issues facing the world today, from climate change, um, abortion rights, um, civil rights. Are I mean, I'm thinking of um, you know the piece, the, the piece from the show which was called "Love by Any Means Necessary" and which contains those words um, and sort of yellow flowers. It looks very beautiful, but also to me, and it reminded me of the protests from the 1960s when student protesters were handing out flowers when faced being faced down with guns. And also there are sort of, you know, an ancient, a piece, a statue based on an ancient tribal piece of, a, a sort of a human figure, which looks like an, a piece of ancient tribal African art, but this, the wrists of the figure are sort of encir- in, encircled with chains, which is, to me is a reference to slavery. Um, and I'm thinking of the um, an obelisk piece you did, um, sort of covered in shards of glass, which, um, look like a particularly threatening emblem of sexual violence to me. Um, do you feel like any of the pieces you've made have landed particularly effectively in delivering a political message?
1: See, again, I think there one has to be, one has to think of art in, a, in, a, in perhaps in a more um, homeopathic sort of way, um, rather than in a Western medicine sort of way, where you take a tablet and it's an instant cure. Let's um, go back to um, this idea of the, the quote, um, we will liberate our minds by any means necessary from, from um, Malcolm X. Now, in fact, Malcolm X uh, took the quote by any means necessary from Jean-Paul Sartre, from a play that he made, and jean Sartre took it from Franz Fanon, who was both a poet and also a philosopher and, and a militant philosopher at that. Um, and there we see how an idea becomes viral and how an idea can spread from one person to another person's imagination um, and, and take root in this idea of transformation, and then eventually it finds its time and space to, to blossom. Um, and indeed, you speak about you know, the, 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 the hippie movement, you know, the whole idea of the flower power, and it was in fact Allen Ginsberg who suggested working with flowers um, and this idea. So today I work with flowers because, um, as a Dutch descendant, um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an Afrikaans person, I uh, very much make the link between the Dutch Golden Age in the 17th century and the money that created that Golden Age, which in fact came from the colonies. So it was the money from South Africa and from, from China and from India and from the East Indies. Um, they created the wealth in Holland that could then generate the market of art, which then is what we know of as still life. And when you look at the still lives, what are we looking at, in fact, is the wealth of that time. Because what we're presenting is the food people were eating. A lot of the flowers that were being painted were extremely exotic. And in fact, those still lives at the time were emblems of wealth. So, fast-forwarding into the present, I'm trying to understand and interrogate how we can take the still life language, the still life genre,
0: which is not a noble one.
1: It's one of those, consider one of those small ones on the side. Um, a domestic um, um, form of painting, and what I'm painting, in fact, are my wounds, my scars. You know, so they called the fleur de mal from Baudelaire, another poet, the flowers of evil, or the flowers of pain. Um, and I'm looking at my scars as a man, as a white man, as a white African man, understanding the contradictions, complexities, privileges, um, guilt, and all the problems that go into what it is that I am, and. Understanding that if I can begin to heal my being, my, the artist I am and the person that I am, I make a huge leap towards being able to heal the world around me.
0: Do you think that art that doesn't contain a political message that's purely decorative, does that have any value? I also
1: need to you know, put in the, 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 let's say, the warning, the provisor, that I'm not a fan of political art. And I don't believe that my art is political. Simply because, as a, if you look at my Instagram, you'll see I am a political being. I certainly have political opinions. And I'm not afraid of expressing my political opinions as a person. However, as an artist, I shy away from making works about that are called political because one of two things happens. The person who looks at the work has two choices. Either they agree with my politics or they disagree with my politics, but nothing changes. And the idea of artists announcing their politics for me is no better than the missionaries who went to Africa, who were saying, "This is what this is right and that is wrong." I mean, you create a binary situation where there is—it's it's a very violent way of expressing yourself—to assume you have the moral high ground and you are the moral authority, and you have decided. And if you don't agree with the artist, well, then you're wrong. I'm much more interested in a in, in in the space of a moral ambiguity, where the work of art itself doesn't announce its politics, and instead it invites you to cross the bridge into um, translating, transforming, understanding the work of art, and then you are confronted by your own politics. So, in that sense, that the work of art invites you to think about where you stand, your politics, without judgment, and in that way, you are then more likely to have your perceptions altered. And in that way, the work has a political function rather than being political.
0: You mentioned your Instagram account already um, and in in which you tackle with gusto, the major issues the world is grappling with today. Um, What are your thoughts on the current discussion around statues?
1: (laughs) You know, um, we speak about the colonial process about um, how the Europeans discovered Africa or how the Europeans discovered the Americas. Um, The Americas is something else, but Africa has always been on the other side of the Mediterranean. You know, Egypt was part of Africa, not part of Europe. And and there was always trade and exchange between Africa and Europe, exchange of ideas, exchange of um, um, all kinds of things. Um, And it's only after the colonial process that um, we begin to speak about Africa as this land which was discovered and saved. By Europeans and so when we look at history you know it's it's told from whose point of view now in in the recent you know i've been i've been using my my instagram account for instance thinking about who am i speaking to now i don't need to speak to people protest black people in america protest don't need me to say anything to them because they know very well what they're doing and they're doing a very good job of it however a lot of white people um might not realize that they're racist And even, especially, you know, your liberal, educated white person might simply say, well, I'm not racist. And of course, my my question always follows, how do you know? How would you know you're not racist? Have you ever asked a black person, do you know any black people? And of course, then, you know, the, 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 the cliches would be some of my best friends are black or all lives matter. And I've been trying to use my Instagram as a way for... Helping white people to understand that what they think of as common sense, logic, or perhaps even good intentions might be laced with a prejudice and a racism which goes back generations because it's the habits of the past that make us uh, into what we are today. And you know, when you see Christopher Columbus, the statue of Chris, Christopher Columbus, and it says he discovered America, you're not speaking about the people who are living there before Christopher Columbus arrived. And we're not speaking about what in the aftermath of what happened after Christopher Columbus arrived. And so it's important that we also understand that history is told by the winner. Um, And right now, there's a great momentum around the world where things are changing. And it's good that these public statues, these public monuments get called out to to pose the question, whose history are they speaking of? How did those statues come into being? Why are we um, making monuments to slave traders? Why are we making monuments to people who are committing crimes against humanity? And so I think it's good that these things get redressed and spoken about. Um, and, um, And, you know, I also on Instagram, you know, where there's a lot of people will say, yeah, black lives matter, but don't go looting, you know? And, you know, of course I've been trying to draw attention to the fact that the British Museum is probably the biggest museum in the world of looted objects. Stolen from Greece, stolen from Africa, stolen from Asia, stolen from all over the world, wherever the British Empire went, they were stealing, they were looting, they were raiding, and they're taking it back. And and what it does is it becomes a museum of trophies. You know, it's it's a bit like, you know, animals who have been hunted and have their heads cut off and stuck on the wall. And we today would say, if you have a half-conscience, you'd say, well, that's that's not okay. How is that any different than what we see in the British Museum or you know in, the, in 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 the city squares all around the uk
0: what do you think a an answer is do you think it is to um, topple and remove or return these pieces to their country of origin or do you think it's about educating and changing the messaging and putting the statues in a museum what do you think is the
1: well, approach I think it's a bit of both i mean i think that there is of course concern that if um, the British Museum simply returned all the objects to the countries that they were taken from, um, those objects wouldn't be taken care of, which is probably correct because the, the colonial process destroyed um, the local situations. They destroyed um, economies. They decimated uh, the, 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 the palaces. They, they basically left, uh, they, they, they literally in South Africa, where the British invented the first the world's first concentration camp, they had a policy called scorched earth policy where they started on the one side of the country and they burned the entire country into famine. Um, and they pretty much did that culturally and, and economically on, and on every level. So I think there is a certain um, responsibility to now to rebuild the cultural institutions in order that the objects can be returned um, to, to, to their countries of origin. And we also have to be clear that these many of these objects, um, like the, the mask of Queen Ayoba, um, you know the, the ivory mask in the British Museum, which was stolen in 1897 during the punitive raid. This is not a mask which one puts on the face to wear for decoration. This is the crown jewels. This is given from one king to the next king or queen. Um, these are cultural heritage. Now these works need to be returned to Nigeria, from whence they came, with a commitment to educating to um, Creating um, institutions in order to to um, protect those 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 objects. Now, I don't have a problem when the British Museum say at this point it's world heritage, but I do have a problem with the arrogance of saying that the British are the only people who can take care of world heritage. I think they also need to share those things with the people where they w- from the countries where they were taken, so those people can know their own histories, so they can know their own heritage, so that they can so that they can have pride, cultural pride. Emotional pride in in the, the 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 long untold histories of Africa. Um, as for public monuments, I am I believe both in tearing them down and also in re-educating people about them. And in a way, there this could be interesting. Um, you know, if I was a mayor of a city um, and I had the responsibility of what to do with these objects, I would do like what they do in London on on on, on Trafalgar Square with the fourth plinth. You know, you. Make these these old colonial racist um, statues available for artists to adapt, change, transform, so that we can update the history, so that we don't destroy them, but we certainly don't allow them to continue to project an image um, which is a crime against humanity as a hero.
0: Do you worry about censorship or editing history if people are being silenced or not being this able? This is
1: the most I mean, a lot of my work uh, on. My, my bronze sculpture, the bronze sculpture that you mentioned in the exhibition. Um, so she has chains which have been cut off her arms, but her hands are also being cut off because in the Congo, King Leopold was cutting people's hands off as, a, as you know, if he considered somebody to be lazy or not working hard enough, he'd cut their hands off. Um, there's a lot of violence in the history of the colonial process that needs to be spoken about. Europeans don't know what is happening in Africa. They're not aware the degree of the dehumanization, the degree of violence that was being perpetuated in order to preserve white privilege and the the European way of life. Um, I think that censorship is, is, is a very big issue because there was this important protest in 1968, I think it was in Memphis, where black men were walking down the road holding a poster and the poster said simply, I am a man. And what they were protesting was being called a boy. Because in the language, it was a pejorative to speak about an adult black man as a boy, which was a way to say, you're not my equal. And the right to speak is extremely important. It's the the most basic right to speak for yourself, to decide who you are, what is your culture, your value. So the people who made those objects, have the right to speak on behalf of the objects rather than be spoken for. And so a lot of my bronze sculptures, you have the, Because the mouth is blocked by a hand, it's suffocated, it's it's, the inability to speak. Um, This is the fundamental right that everybody needs to be able to have, male, female, black, white, um, to self-define, to define your own morality, your own ethics, your own values, in order to be able to walk down the road as an equal to anybody else.
0: That's really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me today. Um, before we finish, tell me more about your upcoming exhibition.
1: So, the, I mean, the, the next exhibition is, is really following on from the exhibition in, in London. Um, it's, a, it's more ambitious, it's a larger space. Um, and it is an, an internal discussion I'm having with myself about the, the limits of aesthetics and the limits of violence. And where beauty very often becomes an excuse to let us off the hook and violence is very much too confrontational and there's a balance between beauty and violence where we might be able to grow here and have a better discussion if one finds that correct blend. Um, and of course there was another work uh, on the exhibition in London, which, uh, is a neon sign that says fucking hell, but broken up into fuck King hell So speaking about royalty and, and, you know, and, and the, the, the lineage between God and humans. Um, and so the exhibition in, in in Milano is really looking at this idea of fucking hell, which for me defines this moment right now better than anything else. I can't think of a better way to describe what we're all going through, whether it's the COVID, whether it's Black Lives Matter. And and in Instagram now, I'm really putting a lot of attention to try to draw, to make the world realize that the, 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 the violence against women in South Africa is just, off the scales. It's just, it's so terrifying that every single, so George Floyd was suffocated for just over eight, almost nine minutes. Every single nine minutes, a woman is raped in South Africa, every single three hours, a woman is murdered in South Africa. And I'm shocked at the culture that would allow that to happen. I'm shocked that more men are not speaking up about it. And in this moment of transformation, I think it's also important that the world knows, What's going on in South Africa. The world knows because every South African knows it, but outside of South Africa this is still somehow not something that is reaching the news, it's not something that's been spoken about and you know the world needs to know this we need to speak about this and if there's a way to to effect change you know then I shall try and so you know that that that, that weaves into the exhibition somehow um, in a way of talking about the greater context of the the, the spiritual and emotional health of the planet
0: today. So thank you so much, Kendall. It was a real thank pleasure to you. Thank you very much for a beautiful
1: um, discussion. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to In Talks With, with me, Danielle Radoitjen. The sound and theme music were by Woggy Productions and the artwork is by Patrick Waugh. If you enjoyed this episode, please pass it on to someone who you think might also like it, And of course, please do subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for listening.